the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. You are renouncing the old ways. You are renouncing the old life. You are renouncing the old you. And you are embracing the new you that you've been created by Christ Jesus to be. Behold, he makes all things new. If you're a believer, you are a new creation in Christ. And he calls us to live in newness of life. And not to gratify the desires of the old life. And not to do everything we used to do. There needs to be a conscious, deliberate, courageous decision that I'm not going to any longer be like that because that's my old life. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you are not the same person that you were before. The Bible says that you are a new creation. The old man is dead and a new man is raised in the old man's place. To further this idea in today's message, Pastor Gary will remind you that we're called to live differently. Just because God offers us grace and mercy doesn't mean that we can go out and live our lives in any way that we see fit. Our lives are to be lived in service of the Kingdom of God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Do you ever notice that? When it goes through the washer too many times, then the edges of the patches start to peel and never really works. And can you also relate to this? Putting patches on the old jeans or cords, too. You'd have patches on cords. You ever wore corduroys? Did any of you ever do this, too? Man, my mom, whenever she would buy me pants like cords or jeans, she'd buy them like six inches too long and roll them up. And then it would be like people could tell your age, like how they cut down a tree and you could read rings on a tree. And as you grew and you'd start to unroll your pants legs, you'd see rings. People like, oh, you've had those jeans for about one, two, three years, haven't you? Yeah, I know. I'm like 15 now. I got them when I was 10. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's embarrassing. It's like... I can't believe I actually had pictures taken in those things. Oh, my goodness. It's just like you look up the word dork in the dictionary. There I am wearing my, my jeans with patches. And, but, you know, that's what we did. We were more resourceful in the day. Okay? If you're here, you know, the younger crowd, you're like, what is resourceful? Let me tell you what resourceful is. I remember going to my grandmother's house. All of the jars were former jelly jars. They were all jelly jars. We were all drinking out of jelly jars. I mean, that's just the way it was. We were just resourceful. My grandmother would use paper towels. And throughout the day, the same paper towel. She'd wipe her hands with it, and then she'd lay it over the spigot of the kitchen sink. And it would dry out and be good for, you know, for the whole day. We'd be like, Grandma, why, why do you keep using the same old towel? Well, it's still good. Until it shreds, it's good. 
And, you know, we chuckle, but I marvel at that. Because I think, you know, today we've just gotten a little too wasteful, I think. We're not as resourceful as it used to be. I remember my dad telling me, now when you get to the end of your toothpaste, all right, cut it open. (laughs) Cut it open and peel it back. There's some good toothpaste in there. (laughs) Of course, Terry laughs at some of the stories I tell her that, you know, when we were taking baths as little kids, my dad would say, all right, now look, when you fill up the bathtub, it's going to come up to the second knuckle. That's it. And, he, and he, it was like a dipstick in a bathtub. <laughs> Run a little bath water. He's like, all right, okay, a little bit more. It's not quite up to the second. There, stop, stop. There you go. That's enough. So Jesus says here, you know, don't put a new patch on an old wineskin. It's just going to burst away. Now, he's saying really here two things. It's kind of a dual meaning. The first thing that I think he's saying is this, that he didn't come to patch up the law, but to bring a new work of grace. This isn't like a veneer. It's not like Jesus came to say, okay, your whole legal system and the, and the whole way that you're so righteous and all your rules... I want to just kind of put a veneer over. No, no, no. He's saying, look, all of that was pointing to the ultimate need for a Savior, which Jesus is. And so he's come to bring grace because it is by faith are we saved through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Jesus comes to bring grace, not to just kind of patch up the law. That's one thing that he's saying here. But the other thing I think is important to note on a personal level is that Jesus is saying this, that we are not to mix the old life with the new life. And there are some people who become Christians and they think, well, all it is is, you know, I just believe in Jesus now, but I can still do what I used to do. No, it is dying to self and it is becoming a new man or a new woman in Christ as he's called you to be. That's why Paul would write in Ephesians, let me just read to you, Ephesians 4, 22 and 23. He said this, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You hear that? He talks about putting off the old self, putting on the new self, and putting on the new self, the Greek word there is in duo, and it's in the sense of sinking into a garment, is what Strong's Dictionary says, in the sense of like sinking into a garment. So you are like putting on a new self. You are living a new life. You are renouncing the old ways. You are renouncing the old life. You are renouncing the old you. And you are embracing the new you that you've been created by Christ Jesus to be. Behold, he makes all things new. If you're a believer, you are a new creation in Christ, and he calls us to live in newness of life. And not to gratify the desires of the old life, and not to do everything we used to do. There needs to be a conscious, deliberate, courageous decision that I'm not going to any longer be like that, because that's my old life. I've received Christ now. I'm going to live for his praise and for his glory. I'm going to get into his word and find out what all that means. And he'll teach us and he'll fill us with his spirit. And he will guide us and direct us and grow us in that new relationship with him. But it is a deliberate decision to renounce the former way of life. Jesus did not save us to just get us a ticket to heaven while we still do everything that we used to do. That is putting a new patch on an old wineskin. 
We are not to mix the old life with the new. We are to make a clear break from the old way of life, and we are to live for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's the other thing that Jesus is saying here. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins. No, you pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Well, reading on in verse 18, we come now to a couple more examples of the, the faith list that we have going here. We come to a father's faith in verse 18. It says, while he was saying this, while Jesus was still teaching what we just read, a ruler came by and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Now, Matthew doesn't give us his name, but Mark in Mark 5 and Luke in Luke 8 tell us that his name is Jairus. J-A-I-R-U-S, Jairus. He's the synagogue ruler, so he's in charge there of the local synagogue there in Capernaum. And uh, ever since the Jews returned from captivity, uh, they established synagogues. And a synagogue was established wherever there was at least 10 Jewish men in a community. If there were 10 or more, then they would build a synagogue in that community. And this is Capernaum. And so uh, at this particular time, there are thousands of people living in, in Capernaum. And so here comes this ruler, Jairus. His uh, daughter is, uh, has just died. Now, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel tell us that she is in the process of dying. Uh, either way, all of the gospels agree that by the time Jesus gets there, she is dead. And here comes Jairus. And you can tell he has faith, even though it's not specifically mentioned his faith. But he says to Jesus, but you come and put your hand on her and she will live. So this guy has faith. I mean, he's obviously believing that Jesus can do whatever, and Jesus goes with him, and so did his disciples. Now, Luke's gospel tells us this was his only daughter. This was his only daughter. And both Mark and Luke tell us that she was 12 years of age. She's 12 years old. It's the only daughter of this guy, and she's just died. And he's heartbroken, as any dad would be. And he seeks out Jesus. He says, just come, put your hand on her, and she'll live. He knows. He believes. And this is going to be the first of three people that Jesus raises from the dead. But as he goes, he gets interrupted here. Verse 20, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, isn't that interesting? It's 12 years old for the girl, and this woman has been bleeding for 12 years. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, not out loud, she says to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. Now notice, he's also reading her mind. She knows what she's, he knows what she's up to. He says, take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you, and the woman was healed from that moment. So you have two scenes here that are colliding. You have a father in grief because his daughter has just died. She's 12 years old, and it's his only daughter. And you have a woman here who has been bleeding for 12 years, and she's in desperate need of healing. One of the other gospels says that she had spent all that she had on doctors to try to find healing, a cure, and she still was not cured. And so she comes to Jesus, and she thinks to herself, if I just touch the edge of his cloak, now the edge of his cloak here, there are tassels that hang on the garments of Jewish men, and no doubt Jesus would have had these hanging around the edge of his garment, the cloak, the the hem of his garment, and in Hebrew it's called zitziot. Zitziot were little tassels that reminded every Jewish man about the law. 
she's probably grabbing hold of one of the zitziots, one of the, the tassels, because she's clinging to all that she knows is the truth of God. And here she believes by faith, because Jesus commends her. He says, your faith has healed you, and she's trusting Jesus for her healing. Now, you have to imagine this. Obviously, she has a female condition here, and, uh, and she's been bleeding for 12 years. Now, in Leviticus, it talks about if a woman has a discharge of blood longer than her regular menstrual cycle, she is to be unclean for the duration of the discharge. In fact, in Luke 15, I'll just read, sorry, Leviticus 15, let me just read a little bit of it. It says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean as is her bed during her monthly period and anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water and he will be unclean till evening. When she is cleansed from her discharge, she must count off seven days, and after that she will be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must take two doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her discharge. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them, says the Lord. Now check this out. For 12 years, this woman could not go into the temple of God, could not go into the synagogue, could not be near someone else, if she had contact with them, they would be unclean. Any place she would sit, no one could sit following her. Any place she would lie down, no one could lie down there. You talk about being ostracized. It was as if she had, in her own sense, leprosy, as we read in the previous chapters, because she's that kind of an outcast of society due to her ongoing physical illness here. For 12 years, she has suffered like this. Can you imagine how lonely and isolated it is for you to live within a community, but you can't really go near anybody, and she does something that you're not supposed to do. She reaches out and touches Jesus. But again, Jesus never withdraws because he was always personable and reachable and touchable. And as Jesus receives her, he commends her faith. She just believes, if only I could touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. All I have to do is if I just have contact with him, I will be healed. You, have to, you marvel at her faith here because she's so moved to be healed. She's probably so desperate. And Jesus says to her, your faith has healed you. It's the Greek word sozo. The first time that word appears in Matthew's gospel is back in chapter 1, verse 21, where it is translated to save. Sometimes in the gospel it is translated to save, sometimes to heal, sozo, because it is an indication of a complete wholeness that that person has received, S-O-Z-O, sozo. And she is healed here by Jesus instantly. That woman from that moment was healed. Now, what I love in addition to this tenderness and the ministry that Jesus has with this dear woman is the idea that though these two situations collide, you have this 12-year-old daughter who's just died, you have this woman who's been sick for 12 long years, as Jesus is making his way to Jairus' house, he is not too busy to be interrupted. Have you ever thought sometimes that, you know, you're one of 7 billion people on the planet and whatever your need is, God is just probably too busy to, to deal with your problem, and how could it be interrupted by your need? Jesus is never rushed, he's never hurried, he's never put out. 
He doesn't turn to her and say, you know, I see that you're in need, but I'm on my way to another appointment and I have to go to Jairus' house and, you know, maybe I'll catch up with you later. He is willing to always be interrupted and inconvenienced, if you will, because he loves us. And he stops right where he is and he ministers to this woman and his healing virtue passes from him into her and she is healed from that moment. Now he picks it up. And he continues on to Jairus' house in verse 23. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. They laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. Jesus gets to the house here, and you got flute players, you got noisy crowds. Now, people had to be buried before sundown in that day. And what this is talking about here are there are professional mourners. The synagogue ruler is typically a wealthy man. He's hired his own professional mourners. Can you imagine people coming to your house and they're just, you know, they're playing these, in this terrible, you know, and all the people are like, woo, you know, they're, they're wailing. And, and if you've ever uh, gone to the Middle East or seen, you know, news coverage, both Arabs and Israelis, they, particularly the women, they will do this, have you ever heard that when somebody dies? You know, to me it sounds obnoxious, but that's just my ear, okay? In the culture, it doesn't sound obnoxious. That's what they do. But here they are making all this noise, and they're playing flutes, and Jesus says, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. Now, she is dead, but as far as Jesus is concerned here, this is a statement that death is not permanent. She's going to be raised up, and he knows. They laugh at him. They mock him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in. Now, Uh, Mark chapter 5 tells us that he also took Peter, James, and John. He had kind of an inner circle among the 12. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes the girl's parents, the mother and the father, and he goes in. He took the girl by the hand, and she got up. Now, Mark records in Mark 5.41 that Jesus spoke, and it's one of the rare times in our Bibles that it records the actual Aramaic. And Jesus says to her, Talitha kum. Talitha kum translates literally, it's a very tender expression, it translates literally, little lamb, arise. He calls her this little lamb. Just such a tender term. It says, little lamb, arise, and she got up. This will be the first of three. He raises her from the dead. He raises the widow's son of Nain from the dead, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. But the truth is that they will all again die. And so even uh, the miracles that Jesus does here, that's why Jesus is often more concerned about the soul than he is the body, because even though he raised them from the dead, they will die again. So it's more important that he gets always to the soul issues here. All right, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. Ben David, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, again, this goes back to the issue of faith. He doesn't say to them, Do you believe you will be able to see? He doesn't want our focus to be on what we want as the result. Again, it's okay to make our request known to him, but faith is not faith in faith. It is faith in the one who can do the sovereign work. So Jesus directs it to himself. He says, Do you believe that I'm able? Not do you believe that you're going to be able to see. Do you believe that I'm able? And they say, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, will it be done to you? And their sight was restored. And Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. 
but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. I mean, two blind guys now can see. I mean, what does he mean by that? He says, don't go and tell anybody. Everybody's going to see. These guys can now see. What he's really saying to them is, look, Jesus is always very cognizant of the timeline. He doesn't want to prematurely be made king because people want an earthly Messiah to overthrow Roman government. So he says, don't go around talking about this because he doesn't want people to prematurely make him king. He's come as king of a greater kingdom, not to just overthrow the Roman government. So he warns them. He says, don't don't tell anybody. Verse 32, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been made mute spoke. Now, this is the last example here. Number five, no apparent faith. There's no mention of faith here. This demon-possessed guy certainly doesn't have faith because he's possessed by a demon. Perhaps whoever brought him to Jesus had faith, but it doesn't mention it. And I just love this angle of the healing work of Jesus because sometimes God just does what he wants to do because he loves us. It's not always dependent. It's not like God's hands are tied, right? He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. It's not like, well, unless you have faith, it's like God's up in heaven. Unless you have faith, I'm not doing nothing for you, okay? It's not like that because a lot of times God just does wonderful, beautiful things, and we have zero faith. And aren't you glad for that? Because if it was always dependent on you and me before we would get what we wanted from God, we'd never get it probably because most of us lack enough faith to get much. But God, having mercy and compassion, heals, in this case, delivers, just because. Just because he can, just because he loves. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons, which is just an illogical thing to say, right? If you're driving out demons... And why would you be demon-possessed and defeat yourself and doing that kind of thing? But they don't know what to attribute the power of God to because they don't want to acknowledge that Jesus is God. Verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Notice this, he went through all the towns and villages. One history commentary says that in the region of Galilee at this particular time, there were 214 towns and villages. He goes through all of them, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, or King James says pray, but actually the Greek is deome, and it means to beg. Beg the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus, with great tenderness and compassion, he looks at all the people and he feels for them. And his heart goes out to them. And so he calls us to pray, to ask, to beg that God would send workers into his harvest field. And you know what that means? That means that for some of you, as you pray and ask, the Lord is going to say, thanks for asking, I'm calling you. And you and I have that privilege of doing our part in the kingdom's work. Jesus says, look out into the harvest. It's white, the fields, white unto harvest. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. May we have the same eyes that Jesus does to look with tenderness and compassion on all the people around us who need Christ. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who once said, before you can be winners of souls, you must first be weepers of souls. 
You first have to have a heart that is broken for the lost and to weep over them before you and I will ever be effectively able to win them to Christ. Let us be weepers of souls in order to be winners of souls. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person, and that includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know